Okay, the, the subject that we're going to be talking about, or actually that I'm going to be talking about and you're going to be listening to, uh, is media violence and its effects. This, this whole sort of topic for me began, oh, I guess it was a, a few years back, actually 99, um, when this event shocked North America. Okay, here we go. April 20, 20th, 1999, carrying several weapons and setting off homemade bombs, teenagers Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold killed 12 students and a teacher and wounded about 26 others before committing suicide. When I first started hearing about this, this crime, I didn't know what to make of it. It made no sense to me. Why would someone blow themselves up with all kinds of weapons, go into school and start shooting complete strangers, people they had no connection to, I mean, I could understand it if, say, there's a, a bully who's bullying another kid for months on end, tormenting him. Finally, the kid snaps, goes home, gets a handgun, comes to school, shoots the bully. There's a motive. I, I kind of at least can, can rationalize a little bit why that was done. It makes a little bit of sense. But what would make two students just start shooting at people at random? They didn't really hate these people. They just picked them as targets. Why? It didn't make any sense. Okay, gun ownership in, in North America and in the U.S. is nothing new. Um, there's always been guns in the U.S., in Canada as well. It's not really any different. Um, but what's changing is kids are now taking these, these firearms to school. That didn't happen 50 years ago. So what changed? Okay, here's, here's a quick overview of, of the youth of, of North America, really. Uh, for ages 15 to 24, murder is the second leading cause of death. For African-American youth, murder is number one. Every five minutes, a child is arrested in America for committing a violent crime. This is a scary one for me. Gun-related violence takes the life of an American child every three hours. Estimates indicate almost 5,000 gangs in the U.S. with about 250,000 members total. Uh, Toronto recently, over the last five or ten years where I'm from, uh, has developed some really, really bad gang problems in some, of the, some areas of the city. So this is not something exclusive to the U.S., though I am using U.S. numbers. Um, for the statistical data. Since 1960, teen suicide has tripled. At least 160,000 children miss school every day because they fear an attack or intimidation by another student. Every day, an estimated 270,000 students bring guns to school. So you can figure at any given time, there's at least a half dozen to a dozen firearms probably in your school. I don't know if that divides up exactly, but that's kind of scary. One out of every 50 ch uh, children have a parent in prison. One in three girls and one in seven boys are sexually abused by age 18, which also has some impact on frustration and violence. Okay, boring chart, but it says something very interesting. Down here, that's the homicide rate, the number of people killed every year. Killed, not dying of natural causes. This line here, the green line, that represents the incarceration rate. That's the amount of people in prison during these years, from 1960 to approximately present day. This line here is the aggravated assault rate. Anyone know what aggravated assault means? What differentiates it from uh, simple assault? That That's actually part of it. Aggravated assault is, is uh, assault with the intent to either kill or to seriously injure. So this is not just a kid popping another kid in the nose in the schoolyard. This is someone going after someone, probably with a weapon, with the intent to kill or cause them serious bodily harm. So. 
Now, this doesn't really make sense when you consider the demographics. Homicide and assault rates should be decreasing in North America. We've got an aging population. The prime crime years are 16 to 24, which you fit right in, uh, which could explain some of the things in the dorm at night. Um, one of the things that also should be contributing to, uh, to a lower crime rate, lower homicide rate, lower aggravated assault rate, is that we have a better understanding of the, the factors that contribute to crime. Um, we've got a much, much more developed social, uh, uh, social health network that can help recognize problem situations before they get out of control. Uh, we've got some, some, some highly developed um, tracking systems now where we can track uh, repeat offenders and make sure that they, they stay away from um, uh, potential problems. There's just recently in Canada, there's, there's been a sex offender registry created to keep track of these people so we can decrease crime through those methods as well. But <clears throat> the problem is it's not. Look at the aggravated assault rate. It drops off here, and I'm going to explain that in a few minutes. Um, people are trying to kill each other. Really, that's what aggravated assault is, the intent to kill. They're trying to kill each other at an increasing rate, even though the population is aging. So how do you stop that? Well, there's two main factors that, that artificially depress this rate. One of the things is a high imprisonment rate. Look how high this has climbed over the last 50, 60 years. We now, in, actually in the US, and I'm probably the numbers hold true for Canada as well, we have more people in prison per capita than any other industrialized country. There are more people locked up. And you're paying your tax dollars to keep them there. Uh, we also have medical advances and technology which drastically improve your chances of survival if we get you to a hospital in 15 to 20 minutes. Um, trauma research out of experiences like the Vietnam War uh, have, have really increased response time and you have a much better chance now than 50 years ago of surviving a gunshot wound if it didn't hit you in some place extremely vital like your brain or your heart. <clears throat> okay. We're going to start tracking it now. We're going to go back in time a little bit and see what contributed to that dramatic rise in the aggravated assault rate, the, the rate at which people are trying to kill each other, really. OK, in 1981, the national murder rate had doubled since the 50s. Anyone ever heard of the National Center for Disease Control? What do they do? Study diseases, the effects of diseases on society, and also how diseases would spread in society. The significant thing is the National Center for Disease Control realized that this thing was now becoming a problem. They actually labeled it as a disease, and they decided to study it as a disease to look for the factors that was contributing to the spread of this disease of violence. OK, here's what they found. After seven years of research, and this was not really covered much by media for obvious reasons, um, the one factor that was determined to have the greatest effect on the rising aggravated assault rate was television violence. And the, the man who conducted the study, it's, it's really fascinating to read how they did the study, first of all, the, the, all the things that they looked at. It's just incredible. But he said, this, this point here, television violence, it never was sort of an, aha, we've got it now. It was something that just refused to be eliminated. Through clinical study, they, they, they put it through uh, tests compared to other factors, and it still refused to be eliminated time and time again. In fact, the man who conducted the study, who was in charge of it, made this statement at the end of it. Uh, he said, if television technology had never been developed, there would be 10,000 fewer murders each year in the United States, 70,000 fewer rapes, and 700,000 fewer injurious assaults. Pretty interesting numbers. 
Okay, let's take a snapshot of, of what things were like back in the 50s when, when television culture was really starting. Uh, in the early 50s, one quarter of all U.S. households owned a TV. TV programming was largely nonviolent, with a sizable percentage of shows being informative or inspirational in nature. TV back then, one of the names for it was the University of the Air. Television could take you to far off places you'd never be able to visit. You could see things you would never be able to see otherwise. Um, you could get, get a peek into, into places that you would never be able to see yourself, and it was informative and, and inspirational in nature. A good portion of the programming, not all of it was. Um, television programming was slower paced. I actually studied uh, animation in college, classical animation, drawing cartoons, moving pictures. Um, we actually study this, how you can change the effect on the viewer by changing your pacing rate to make something more interesting. It's interesting if you watch those, uh, some of those old shows from the 50s that kind of put you to sleep sometime, sometimes because you're used to a fast cutting rate. You're used to three second, five second cuts. You're used to seeing images change on a regular basis. Okay, um, But it also contributes to this. American families would actually turn off the TV to discuss what they had watched. When's the last time that happened in your house? Uh, radio was just as viable an alternative to TV and uh, could be just as intellectually stimulating. If you're going for content, the spoken word can give as much information or almost as much information as seeing the spoken word with picture together. Um, Neighbors visited one another a lot more, and games were very, very popular. The board game industry really flourished during this time period. Here's where it changed. Okay, you've got the television networks. How do the television networks make their money? They can't charge you for, for um, receiving their broadcast signals, so how do they make their money? Sponsors, advertising dollars. That's how it's done, right? <coughs> Commercials, we endorse products. You go buy the products. The company's uh, worth goes up. Everyone's happy. Okay. The thing is, they needed a regular viewer base. So they needed some shows that would keep people glued to the couch you know, on certain days a week that they could sell those valuable time slots to the, to, the, uh, to the people who had products to sell. This was done with something that was very different at that time. They discovered something called the violence formula. They would show something that would shock their viewership, show them something that's more violent than what everyday life was like in the 1950s in the US. And it made for compelling viewing. Two shows actually um, touched this whole thing off. Uh, the Untouchables and Gunsmoke. One was a crime drama, one was a Western. Gunsmoke actually, interestingly enough, was the longest running uh, television show, I think, in, in television history. 20 years, something like that. It's an incredibly long life. But it provoked a lot of controversy at the time, too. Um, and as a result, the first congressional hearing on TV violence was actually in 1952. Just kind of interesting. Okay, skipping ahead now. Since 1982, TV violence has increased 780%. Teachers have reported an 800% increase in aggressive acts on the playground. They have also noticed that words turned to pushing, turned to punching much quicker than 10 years ago. How did this happen? Okay, if you follow along here, I'm, I'm going to be building this, this bar as we go, just to keep, keep things straight in your mind. We're going to look at the fruit of violent entertainment. It results in aggression, desensitization, and fear. Here's another study. In 1984, there was a 22-year study which tracked 875 children from a rural county in the US. The amount of TV they watched at age eight, and we're not talking about content here, just the, the number of hours they spent in front of a TV, indica indicated the seriousness of the criminal acts they were convicted for at age 30. Okay? Boys and girls who had watched more TV at age eight 
punished their children more severely than those parents who had watched less TV as children. Again, this demonstrates that, that link between violent entertainment, or entertainment and violence, if you want to put it that way. Uh, this is a famous, a famous statement. It's just a toaster with pictures. Uh, the idea is that the television is nothing more than just another appliance in your home. It's no different than your fridge or your freezer or your dishwasher. The only difference is that it, it shows you pictures. Okay, um, television was introduced to a remote community that did not have television bef before this point, 1986. Uh, and there were some studies done, and again, the, the specifics of the study are quite interesting. If you want to actually find out what these numbers really mean, or you're interested in seeing how they came to these, these percentages, you can see me afterwards. I can give you a kind of a reading list to, to read it out. You're just going to have to accept this at face value for now. Okay, children and adults demonstrated a significant increase in verbal and physical aggression after the two years that television had been introduced. Uh, with the introduction of TV, young children's behavior changed more than older children's or adults. Why do you think that is? More influential, more influential for sure. Why is it more influential? Children are more impressionable. Why, why are children more impressionable? They take things at face value? Yeah, really what it is, what it is, is a young child has not had the chance yet to develop any kind of defenses or, or, or a filter system to, uh, to process information. If they see it on TV and it looks real, to a child it is real. It's a really important difference between older children and younger children. So you'll see some, some pretty drastic results when, when children are fed violent entertainment. Um, children as well as adults uh, more often used aggressive behavior as a successful or acceptable method for achieving goals. That's modern society, right? The guy that recklessly cuts in front of people, drives up the shoulder, he's the one who gets ahead and gets to his destination quicker, unless the cops catch him. Um, the, the, the one who yells, the one who complains to the manager, the one who, who makes a big stink, is the one that gets the preferential treatment. This is another thing, I think, that's a result of, of feeding ourselves on, on violent media. Uh, here's, here's the final sort of kicker. During the two years of the study, rates of physical aggression among Notel, which is the nickname they gave to the town, um, among Notel's kids increased 160%. That was just watching kids play on the playground during recess, during that time period of the study. Okay. Going numb. Violence desensitization. With continued exposure to violence, we become callous, toward acts of brutality and the effects of violence. Violence becomes cool. Who's the cool person in this picture? The girl screaming or Arnie? Arnie. Arnie's in control. <laughs> right? He's, he's cool. He's calm. He's collected. He's packing a grenade launcher. He's the one in the position of power here. Okay? We have learned to associate violence with cool or with role models. We want to be the... Now, we, we want to be the tough guy in, in leather with a gun, not the wimpy-looking kid in the back with a backpack, right? <laughs> That's how society is being conditioned. Who's the role model in this picture? It's pretty obvious. Okay, violence does not happen only because of aggression. Violence also happens because people refuse to do anything about it. There's no intervention. Okay, here's another study, and this one was kind of interesting. It's a little bit older, 1974. I like the picture, it's cute. Um, <laughs> okay, there was, there was a, a group of research that took a group of fifth graders 
divided them in half, didn't sort of pre-select people, sat down a bunch of them to watch 15 minutes of a crime drama, and the other group to watch 15 minutes of baseball. At the end of that, they were taken into another room, there was a television monitor set up, and the researcher told the kid, all right, I want you to watch this monitor, there's, a, there's some kids in another room that you're going to see on this monitor, they're playing right now, and it looks like they're getting along okay, but uh, in case anything happens, we need someone a little bit older to keep an eye on them, so I want you to watch those kids, and if anything happens, just come and call me, I'll be, I'll be right outside in the hall. So, uh, the kids are playing nicely, um, then a little bit of an argument breaks out, then they start scuffling, then they start punching and kicking, and finally the camera itself gets knocked over and the screen goes black. Now what the kids didn't know was that this was a, tapes, uh, a, a tape piece. <clears throat> Here's the interesting results. Children who had just watched 15 minutes of TV violence were five times more likely not to summon help. It desensitizes. It makes you less compassionate and slower to react to things that you see around you. Okay, cultural insensitivity training. The definition of what is acceptable, even normal, changes with our level of desensitization. Here's an example of that. Movies like Natural Born Killers, Fight Club, Pulp Fiction, The Matrix, you can continue the list to more recent movies. We're not being tolerated, never mind become commercially successful, in 1939, the same year that you had Wuthering Heights, The Wizard of Oz, and Gone with the Wind. Okay? I think that in and of itself speaks volumes. If you don't think society has changed or you don't think what you see affects you or affects your level of tolerance for violence, I think that, that puts it pretty clear. Um, with the escalation of screen violence, simple violence becomes passe. Okay, the movie The Passion of the Christ. What was the outstanding thing about that movie? The violence. Everyone said, I couldn't believe how real it was. It was like it was right there. You felt the pain. I haven't seen the movie, but this is just from, from reading reviews and, and so on about it. The, the, the sensational thing about that movie, the thing that got people talking was not the, 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 um, the teachings of Christ that were so radical compared to what was being taught at the time. It wasn't about the life of this man. It was the fact that this violence was so graphic, it shocked people and make people, made people sick. That was the outstanding thing. Gratuitous, I mean, yeah, sure, maybe not. But it was violence and it was shocking. The point is, our threshold just moves farther up the scale. You're used to seeing violent images. It's no longer enough, like in an old western, uh, the bad guy gets plugged and he goes, oh, and falls over, and it looks really corny. You know, that back then was shocking. Now I want to see, I want to see something spraying out of his chest, and I want to see him flying through some plate glass. I want to see the guy plummet 15 feet and you know just land with a big splat on the pavement. Wow. Okay, that was great. <laughs> we have changed. As a society, we have changed, and I would argue not for the better. We are also desensitized to violence when it is presented to us without rationalization or consequence. Arnie runs around with a grenade launcher and is shooting at people. Actually, Pulp Fiction maybe is a better example of this. Um, people get shot, and they're just incidental, incidental characters. They're just yeah, collateral damage. Who cares? It's part of the fun. Um, you know, Violence is presented in a way that makes the person committing the violence look cool, and I don't have to worry about what's, what's happening to other people. There's no rationalization for the violence. Slasher films are based on this. It's actually humorous to find out how the, pe well, the people that watch these films, anyway, from what I hear, it's, it's funny to see how, the, how the, the main character is going to kill some of these people in the movie. Okay, the fear factor. Uh, since the events of 
Who here is reluctant to fly on the plane that's flying into New York City? <laughs> okay, you're going to think twice. You're going to think twice. All right? Things have changed. A constant diet of media violence increases distrust and fear in society. Okay, if, if you were a being from another planet that knew nothing about Earth and only watched the evening news as, as a source of information about our world, what would you think the murder rate was at? Uh, 50% maybe? Uh, you, you think you couldn't go anywhere in this world without some kind of a war, disaster breaking out. Uh, the point is, we have become used to the ideas of disasters. We have become used to the ideas of killing and violence, and the only thing that really interests us anymore is the details of the event. The point is, we've become desensitized to the actual act itself. Violent and or scary programs and movies can have devastating effects on children especially, ranging from anxiety, crying, stomach aches, and nightmares, to post-traumatic stress syndrome. What's that? Vietnam soldiers got that. When you're in an intense combat situation, you develop post-traumatic stress syndrome, which involves things like flashbacks. Uh, it actually manifests itself physically. There's physical symptoms of it. And you've got children who watched a movie that are, are getting this. This is from medical journals. Uh, medical journals note cases where young people have been hospitalized for several days or weeks after watching horror movies such as The Exorcist and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. This whole thing contributes to what I was talking about earlier, the mean world syndrome. Our perception of the world is actually worse than what it really is. We think if I walk down that, that alley or if I take that subway late at night, there's a good chance I'm going to get jumped. Is that really true? I've ridden the subway in, in Toronto at 1 in the morning before, and I never felt unsafe. The, the point is that we have become used to the idea of us being targets. And we, get, we, we become distrustful of uh, people we don't even know, even needlessly, because of our, the amount of violence we've been taking in as a society. So where are we now? By age 18, the average viewer will have watched dramatizations of 200,000 violent acts and 40,000 murders. Television executives still claim that viewers are unaffected or only slightly affected by television violence. Baloney. <laughs> okay, anyone have any idea how much a Super Bowl spot costs? $20 million, maybe, for 30 seconds of your time? And it doesn't affect you. <laughs> they would not be throwing away money like that if they didn't think it affected you. They're, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. Think about it. Commercials are, are 30 seconds or less of time in which they have a chance to push their product on you. Do you like watching commercials? Some are entertaining. Super Bowl commercials they try to make entertaining, right? Because they know the viewership's going to be there. Okay, your natural inclination, when a commercial comes on, okay, hey, time to get a drink, time to use the bathroom, time to whatever. Uh, you know, grab something, come back, and catch the rest of the program. The whole point is, they've got 30 seconds to try to, to try to get something across to you that you don't really want to receive. Well, what about the hours of TV that you're watching voluntarily? If the 30-second time slot that they've got to affect you against your will is effective, what about the hours that you're watching willingly? Okay, here's the next step. And if you're following this progression, we've talked about violent entertainment. We've talked about the aggression and desensitization that happens because of that. Now we're moving on to killing the conscience. This is sort of our road to Columbine, 
what happened with these, these young people. You have to kill the conscience in, a, in, in order to make um, a, a psychopathic killer like that. Okay, humans are not, by nature, close range and personal killers. If you put a gun in someone's hand, stood them five feet away from someone and said, pull the trigger and blow that person away, 99% of the population would not do it. There's, I mean, maybe, okay, whatever, 2%, 1.5% of the population that's psychopathic, perhaps. I don't know, that may be inflated. But for the average person, they would not. Even animals use violent, but not usually lethal methods to determine social order. We're surrounded by these, uh, well, specimens. Um, they've all got these big horns on their heads. Some of, the, some of the tips of those horns are pretty pointy. What happens within the species? When these, when these animals are fighting for dominance. They butt heads. They, they generally do, but during the mating season... Grab your attention, please. I'm just keeping my eye on the time here. The point is, among the species, among animals of the same kind, they butt heads. There's the... the, the Front portion of their skull is being thickened. The bone is, is, is denser. They smack heads to determine dominance. What happens when that same animal goes up against an animal of a different species? They do something very different. Instead of hitting them straight on with their head, they hook. They've got these horns with sharp tips that are meant to gore. It's only against other species that, that lethal force becomes more of an issue. In, in your own species, you don't naturally do that. Humans are the same way. Okay, in order for a normal person to learn to kill, their God-given conscience needs to be turned off. Okay, you're going to teach people to kill, you have to do it a certain way. The environment teaches. The new soldier is desensitized by going through boot camp. What happens in boot camp? What's the first thing that happens to a soldier when he, when he walks through the gates into the camp? They give him a haircut? They give him a haircut first? They get different clothes right away? They're given a, a uniform. And then what happens is this whole thing, right? What's this guy yelling? I don't know, drop and give me 20 maybe or something like that. Um, the point is they are breaking you down. They are trying to, to knock out of you your, your, your uh, ideas and predisposition that you brought with you to the military in order that it can be replaced with something else. In order to teach you to kill, they've got to teach you to obey. Okay. In all this, in all this training, in all this sort of reforming of your mind, which is why I think is a, a pretty clear example why Christians should not participate in, in warfare, because of what is being done to your mind when you're in the military. Um, even though people are being taught to kill in the military, there are still some safeguards put in place. You've got harsh discipline and character development that is encouraged. What happens if a soldier fires while not under command? Court-martial could be shot. The, the soldier could actually be be shot by a firing squad, depending on the case. They could be uh, discharged from the service. The point is, there are harsh consequences for someone who acts out of line. So instead of having a, a, a group of, of you know, trained psychopathic killers that shoot at everything in sight, you get a disciplined group of, of, of uh, soldiers now that will fire on command. All right. What happens with kids? The environment teaches as well. Children are desensitized by exposure to violence at a very young age. Kids are also natural imitators. They see violence and they imitate it in their play and in real life. The show Power Rangers, 
What was part of the uproar around that when it was first coming out? Yes, it was being acted out. Kids were trying to drop kick each other and, and, and do all kinds of crazy things because they saw it on the show. Children are imitators and they don't think about the consequences of their actions. Here's the, here's the real difference though. In all this, no safeguards are put in place. There is nothing in um, an action movie that at the end of it, you know, all the actors line up again and say, okay, no one really died in the making of this, and we don't think you should get a gun and, and start walking around shooting people. That's not the right way to settle things. You need to talk it over. <laughs> that doesn't happen at the end of action movies. They finish with a big explosion, the hero rocketing out of it in his car or other vehicle, and uh, you know, heavy duty, heavy metal soundtrack, and roll credits. Okay. As you mentioned before, children are born imitators. This kid believes he's a cowboy. Uh, children naturally respond to visual and emotional stimulation in screen content. For a child, identification with a character is a very real thing. Uh, there was an interesting uh, excerpt that I read from um, a man who worked on the set of Sesame Street. He always wondered before he worked there, well, what are these kids going to do when they actually see that you know it's not really Oscar the Grouch in the garbage can, there's a puppeteer there. How are they going to react to that? Is it going to shatter their world? He said it was amazing. You see that the man there with the puppet on his hand talking to the kid, the kid completely ignores the person and talks to the puppet like the puppet's the real character. There's another kind of cute story where uh, there's a, there was a kid there on the, on, the, on the set of Sesame Street and uh, there's a guy climbing into the big bird suit. <laughs> and the kid's looking at the, at the guy climbing into the suit and he tugs on his mom's dress and says, Mommy, Mommy, does Big Bird know he's got a man inside him? <laughs> they actually believe it's real. It seems ludicrous to us. Um, I looked, at, I looked at cartoons, and I always thought, cartoon violence, that's ridiculous. That doesn't really affect children. Well, the thing is, if they're young enough, they can't tell the difference. They try to do some of these things. OK, identification also has a dark side. There was a kid uh, in one of the books that I read. There was an excerpt from him. He said, I used to be scared all the time. But now I just pretend I'm Freddy Krueger, and I'm not scared anymore. Scary stuff. Identification is a powerful thing for children. Children who come from a family where abuse is present face additional challenges. They want to identify with role models that are different from their own situation. They're in a situation where they are powerless, they are being abused, and they want to associate with a, with a person of power, like Arnie or something, that's got a gun and does whatever he wants and doesn't take any guff from anyone. Okay, brains of violent and nonviolent people are fundamentally different. You've got an area in your brain, at the front of your brain, I think it's called the prefrontal cortex, that's responsible for logical thought. It's the thing that when you're a kid on the playground and uh, you're playing away and one other kid walks up to you and bops you in the head, you stop for a second, you look at him, you look around, you see the teacher saw you and you realize, hey, wait a minute, if I punch him, I'm getting in trouble too. So if I don't punch him right now, he's going to be the only one that's getting heck for this. Okay? That's that part of your brain that does that. But for the kid that that part of his brain is not being exercised, he just reacts instinctively and hauls off and hits people. You've met people like this, and there's some people that don't grow out of it. The point is, when children who spend four or more hours a day staring at a screen do not get enough stimulation for healthy brain development, they actually burn out this area of their brain. There's an interesting study. Um, this, this is back in Amsterdam. I think it was Amsterdam in the 1500s. Uh, over a 100-year period, the murder rate dropped by something like 90%, 95%.
Okay, you don't have a whole lot of travel back then. The gene pool isn't changing dramatically. There wasn't a whole lot of other sociological factors that contributed to this. The only thing that made the difference was that the printing press was invented. People were reading a lot more. Reading is one of the things that, that, that develops your prefrontal cortex. It forces you to take in information and assimilate it and uh, um, process it. That's not being developed by children who are watching images. They're reacting. Um, violent on-screen images cause stress on the brain's primal alert system. Have you ever watched a kid watching something scary or exciting on television? What do they look like? They look like this. All right. Once you've killed the conscience, once you've desensitized people to the point where they are no longer shocked and no longer feel empathy uh, for, the, for the victim, then you can go on to the next thing, which is called stimulus response training. In the Second World War, training techniques for armies didn't really change a whole lot. Um, people were marched around, they were run through different drills, you fired at some, tr some, some kind of a target, and that was it. But the problem was, and this is based on data from Napoleon up till the Second World War, the actual average percentage of, of soldiers that were firing at the enemy when they saw them was only about 10 or 15%, which didn't really make sense. You got soldiers that are trained to use these weapons, you get them together, you start them shooting at the enemy, and only 10 or 15% actually fire with the intent to kill. They couldn't understand why the soldiers weren't dropping faster. It didn't make sense. Well, what turned out was what I mentioned before. Humans are not naturally killers. A lot of these soldiers were simply firing over people's heads. Uh, they were doing other non-combative non um, um, exercises, loading rifles for other soldiers that were firing them above people's heads. Um, <laughs> really bizarre, really bizarre. Most of the people that, that died in, in those, those early battles were killed by, uh, by cannon fire, by artillery fire, which has this element of distance in it. It's kind of an impersonal weapon. But the actual process of soldiers killing each other with weapons was something that didn't result in a whole lot of battlefield deaths. Well, once the military uh, uh, leaders discovered this, they decided, well, we've got to do something about this. We've got to fix this problem. We need people killing each other much, at a much higher rate than what we're getting right now. So they, they changed the way soldiers learned to kill. Instead of shooting at a target, at a bullseye, we now dress the soldier in full combat fatigues with a, with a pack on his back, with a rifle in his hands. We put him in a foxhole. And now instead of shooting at a target, we get a, a, a man-shaped silhouette that pops up for a few seconds. He's only got a couple seconds to engage that target, to shoot at it. If he knocks it down, um, he gets a point. And uh, you do that enough, you get a marksmanship badge and a three-day pass to go booze it up on the town or whatever. Okay? So what happens is, this, this is the same technique being used in, in police forces as well. So that when the policeman is walking the beat, some guy pops up with a gun, he doesn't even think about it, he doesn't recognize that person as anything more than a target, his body reacts automatically, pulls out a sidearm, shoots and shoots to kill. Okay? This is a fundamental difference in, in warfare previous to Second World War. Now, this kind of training is not necessarily a bad thing. This is the same thing that, um, that uh, commercial airline pilots learn as well. Uh, they're put through simulators for hundreds of hours, and they learn that, okay, engine burned out, there's certain automatic responses, they flick a couple switches, make a few corrections, and everything's okay. They didn't even have to think about it. It's the same thing with soldiers. We've removed, we've actually bypassed the conscience in order to make the soldier an effective killer. Um, this directly carries over. For young people, once a mind has become desensitized to violent images, it can then be conditioned. 
The gun, the skill, and the will. This is what it takes to kill someone with a firearm anyway. You need a gun, you need the skill to use that gun, and you have to have the will to kill the person. Computers do a fine job of simulating the conditions needed to learn to kill. We can, instead of having to dress the soldier in fatigues, put him in a foxhole, have him shoot real bullets at a real target, we can do that all in simulation now. We save the money from, uh, that we would have been spending on the bullets. We, we don't need the, the space for the training facilities. We can do it all in simulation. Simulators nurture the skill and the will to kill. Operant conditioning is used to establish a stimulus response mechanism. When I see a target pop up, my first response is to fire and think about it later. Soldiers or police officers are conditioned to respond instinctively. They shoot to kill. I mentioned that before. All right. Do-it-yourself violence. For years, Hollywood or TV was the only source of violence. If you want to watch violent things on TV, uh, short of committing a crime yourself, the only place you could go really was to television or watch a movie. This has changed. As graphic as violence on the big screen is, it can't compete with a medium where you, not a scripted actor, control the action. Why watch Arnie when you can be Arnie? Right? This surefire combination of ultra-violence and amusement park fun makes for addictive gameplay. Okay, I don't know how many of you remember some Dude, right up here, that's Duke Nukem, the original Duke Nukem. It's what's called, can I have everyone's attention just for a minute? We're rapidly running out of time, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to charge through this stuff. Duke Nukem, the original one up here, it's a side-scroller. You watch the character run along, he jumps, you know, he shoots, whatever. Okay, fun, but nothing compared to this game. I was around when this came out uh, for the first time, and it was sensational. I remember my first experience playing this game and having a pair of headphones on. And with a 16-bit sound card and a graphics gamepad, you could, you're, you're right in it. I mean, three feet from the screen, you hear someone coming from over there because you've got stereo sound now, you can turn and there's the guy. It was, it was just freaky. Um, you know, it just completely blew away anything else that was out there. So now, I mean, here's your, here's your weapon. You're running around, and the response is immediate. I mean, your heart gets pounding. Uh, you know, you're right in it. Something jumps out, and you react. It's, it's, it's powerful stuff. Okay, but as sophisticated as Duke Nukem, uh, uh, sorry, as sophisticated as Wolfenstein 3D was, people's, people got desensitized to that level of involvement. I want better graphics now. I want it to be more real. So things like Doom 2 came out and things like Duke Nukem 3D. The violence level was stepped up, the interaction level was stepped up, the effort is to make it more real, more violent. Here's kind of where we are today. <laughs> Judging by the sound effects, some of you might have played this game. <laughs> Grand Theft Auto Vice City. Not, not only does this game teach you to use a weapon, teaches you how to be a criminal. <laughs> you guys are laughing. That's disturbing. Uh, what's going to happen when you pull the trigger? His head's going to fly apart like a watermelon. Right? But look, he's got guns in his hand, so he's the enemy. It's okay. We can shoot those guys. That's fine. The point is... We've become, we've gotten to the point where we, we expect more and more. I think it's called Doom 3 now. 
This game on the left here, Manhunt, was the first game to be slapped with an R rating where people under the age of 18 could not purchase the game because of its content. It was actually outlawed in New Zealand, uh, maybe some other places as well, I hope some other places as well. It's, it's depraved. I mean, if, if you want to play the part of a psychopathic killer, you can do it. Here's your virtual chance to be a Jeffrey Dahmer or whatever. Interestingly enough, this game Manhunt and Vice City, uh, they were created by, a, or partially created by a company called Rockstar Games. Some of you might know. I was actually interviewed by that company at the completion of my schooling. Uh, the video game companies recruited pretty heavily from Sheridan where I attended. I didn't know who they were at the time. I knew nothing about them. But there was an appetite. You, you have no idea how much video games make. I've got a friend that works down at Blizzard Entertainment in, uh, in California. They're responsible for the Warcraft series. That company's last three or four games have gone platinum, which means they sold over, what, 20 million copies or something like that? At 55 to 60 bucks a pop, with a company of only, only about 100 to 120 people, you can figure how much money they're making. I mean, it's big bucks involved in this stuff. There's a lot on the line to, to pull in. Really, you guys. You guys are the target audience for these video games. What makes an addictive game? It's a good game. Yeah. Here's some of the things that go into, into, into a good game. As a player, you experience feelings of mastery and control. The level of play is calibrated to your ability. You start off easy, it gets harder. The player receives immediate and continual reinforcement. You do something right, something happens. Either I get some points, uh, the guy falls over, um, whatever. There's immediate and continual reinforcement. The player can escape the problems of reality through gameplay. How many of you guys know someone at school who is maybe a weedy sort of antisocial kid but is amazingly good at video games? I think, I think most of you people know someone like that. They have social skills that are, are not being developed and as a result they turn to video games because in a video game I'm the one in control. I'm no longer the 98-pound weakling that people laugh at. Now I'm Arnie. I'm six foot four, 320 pounds, and I've got a shotgun. <laughs> okay, gameplay can, can set up a pattern of addiction with a definite drug response. You don't actually suffer, suffer video game withdrawal. That's yeah, scary when you consider it's not even a chemical substance. Okay, if it's good enough for the army. <laughs> Believe it or not, Duck Hunt was actually adopted for use in the military. The only difference is they've got a plastic M16 and the targets are now people instead of, uh, instead of ducks. Games like Doom, there's a, version, there's a version of Doom called Marine Doom that's used to teach Marines tactics. Uh, the game Time Price was actually originally developed as a military simulator and then they crossed it over into the arcade market. Uh, the military was not happy about that and sued to try to get them to pull it off the market. I don't think they were actually successful though. These simulators work very well. Okay, we're getting close to the end of this. What's the result of all this? And this is taking us back to the beginning, back to back to Columbine. He has something called the mass murder syndrome. Can I have your attention please? I, I've only got a couple minutes here. I'm actually going slightly over time here, but we started late. Uh, the mass murder syndrome. Trying to kill every living person in front of them until there are no more targets or no more bullets. Okay? Here's the first example of that. This is from uh, Paducah, Kentucky. Michael Carneal, a 14-year-old, 
walked into a Paducah, Kentucky school and opened fire on a prayer group meeting that was breaking up. He never moved his feet during the rampage and never fired far to the left or right, up or down. He simply fired at anything that was on his screen in his field of view. This is not a natural response. If you've got a gun in your hand and you're not familiar with, with, with weapons or with, um, with, with learning to kill, you fire at the threat until it goes down. But in a video game, you don't have time for that. Anyone that's played any of those, those type of games like Time Crisis or Area 51 or any of those other ones, you only have time to fire once at the targets, which is exactly what this guy did. Okay. In video games, however, the idea is to rack up as many points as possible. I'm going to start back a little bit. The regular, the regular reaction is to shoot at a target until it falls, hypothetically eliminating the threat. In video games, however, the idea is to rack up as many points as possible. Many, many video games give bonuses for headshots. It's awful to note that Michael's eight shots, he had all head and upper torso shots. Three dead, one paralyzed. This kid had never fired a gun before in his life. These simulators work. Next one, Wesley Schaefer, he's from South Carolina. He had put hundreds of dollars into point and shoot video games. He and a buddy decided it'd be fun to hold up a convenience store. They walked in, Wesley pointed a 38 at the clerk's head. The clerk turned to look at him, and Wesley fired reflexively, not being part of the plan. And afterwards, he told police, I don't know. It was a mistake. It wasn't supposed to happen. Stimulus response. The guy twitched. He shot, because that's what he had been trained to do. Here's another example. Jonesboro, Arkansas. Two boys. One boy had an experience with guns, but the other had none. Nevertheless, they both were avid video game players. They fired a combined total of 27 shots from over 100 yards away and hit 15 people. They strategically trapped their victims, lined them up, and shot them with deadly accuracy. Military analysts and battle-scarred veterans reacted with disbelief at their accuracy and strategy in setting up a kill zone. This was all learned from video games. And our final point, Columbine. Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris were, uh, Eric were doom addicts. Eric Harris actually modified his version of Doom so that it looked like his neighborhood, complete with the houses of people he hated. When they began their rampage, they moved from room to room, killing almost everyone in their path. And like most kids playing video games, they laughed. So what does this mean for us? I don't expect we have any Eric Harris's or Dylan Klebold's among us, though it is possible, I guess. They represent a very small percentage of the population, but everyone is affected by this. The verse I'd like to focus on is found in 2 Timothy 1.7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's the part of us that Satan is attacking. By overloading your brain with these images, he can actually destroy your mind. He can reduce the amount of compassion you feel for your fellow human being, he can make you not react to, uh, to, to abuses that you see around you, and he can make you less sensitive to the urging of the Holy Spirit. A few more verses to consider. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. That's in Psalms 11:15. In Luke 3:14, this is uh, when some soldiers came to John uh, the Baptist, and the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, 
Neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Titus 1.15, unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Romans 12.2, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'm not asking you guys to determine whether or not violent entertainment or violent video games are fun or entertaining. They are, hands down. The big game when I was in college was GoldenEye. Uh, they had multiplayer tournaments happening any time of the day, uh, a couple TVs hooked up, and they went at it, and these guys got good, really good. I'm not asking you whether or not it's fun. It is fun. The point is, it affects you, and it affects you in ways that Christ does not want you to be affected. If you are a believer, I don't think this stuff has any place in your life. If you're not, and if you'd like to be, I think you, need, you really need to seriously consider what you're feeding your mind, because you are destroying God's capacity to use you as a tool in His service. One of the things I think we can say about our modern world is that we are less compassionate than society was 50 years ago. Why is that? We've become desensitized. I've become desensitized. How many of you have ever noticed, uh, you sit down to watch a movie, say, hey, uh, Mom, Dad, I watched this movie, it was, it was really, really good. You've got to watch it with me sometime. Okay, so you sit down, you're watching it with your Mom and Dad, you go, I don't remember this part. I don't remember this either. Ooh, that was bad. <laughs> the point is, we, as the younger generation, have become desensitized to the effects of what we are watching. And we, we become resensitized when we're sitting next to someone who, who is sensitive to these things. I mean, it sounds like everyone can relate to this kind of thing. So it's, it's, I'm sure it's not just, just me or just not a, a few people. Uh, the, the, answer, the, the question was asked by the 13 to 15 year olds, and I just want to finish with this. He said, well, wait a minute, my grandparents were in the old country back in Yugoslavia. They saw all sorts of violent things. It didn't warp them. It didn't make them psychopathic. What, what's the deal? Ask them. Ask them about them. Ask them if you ever had parents, if you ever have a, uh, a grandfather or, or a parent that was put in prison because they would not take up a gun, ask them if it's okay for you to have a toy gun in the house. We weren't allowed to have squirt guns in our house. My dad broke those <laughs> really fast. The people who have actually lived through this, who have experienced what it really is, not the glamorized version that Hollywood would want to feed you, but the real thing where they saw people they know die, or, or, or people uh, to, to actually see a dead body. It affects you in ways that seeing a dead body on the screen wouldn't, wouldn't even make you flinch now. Just something to consider. That's all I've got. I've got time maybe for one or two questions and I'll let you go.